Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is brought to you again this week by our boys and girls and friends at Baxter Blue. Uh, digital eye strain, man, it's a real thing. You know about it. I know about it. Even if you're just spending too much time picking which episode of Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories you're about to start, uh, you're probably feeling the burn after all the time we've spent in front of screens for the last year. Uh, so Baxter Blue is here to help. Blue light lenses the filter 80% of the highest energy blue light, eliminating 99% of that glare that gets after you. Uh, and I'll tell you, you can really feel the difference when you wear these things for a little bit, man. Uh, makes your day a little more fun. Makes your nights a little less uh, uh, where you got to like look away from stuff, right? Like, turn those lights off. It's too much, man. Baxter Blue is helping you all day. Uh, I wear built for our digital age, and you can get it for 10% off your next purchase. Um, if you're grabbing blue light sleeper kids glasses, click the link in our show notes. Get that exclusive discount. It's the sign you've been waiting for. Invest in blue light glasses. Do it now. Tell them Rock and Roll Bedtime Story sent you. Hey, you awake? Yeah. I just want you to know I hate you. So is my dad. Please go away. Let me sleep for the love of God. Why don't you tell me a story? How do you sleep at night? I don't want to hang out with a bunch of wannabe corporate sellouts. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. We are here to talk about the rumor and innuendo you've heard about your favorite bands and songs. My name is Brian. And I'm Murdoch. Welcome to the show, everybody. Jan and Dean, do you know much about those two guys? Man, I don't. I mean, it's a, a blind spot for me. Yeah, I. me too. And uh, we got... Da, da, ba, da, 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 dead man's curve. Yeah, like, I don't right, even right, know the right, rest right, of the words. Right, right, right. <laughs> so we, we, we've gotten some interest around uh, a, a beach music. We've done, we've done Beach Boys episodes. Um, we've talked about them quite a bit. But uh, Jan and Dean, I, I, I don't know the story. So I figured if we were going to do something on Jan and Dean, we might need an expert. Because, you know, a lot of times we're in the 80s, and you're kind of the resident expert. If we get into the 90s, I definitely have a lot to contribute. And, you know, we do a lot of research, but maybe we need somebody who can punch above our weight class if we're going to talk about this. And so I got this wild idea. Um, do you know who Joel Selvin is? Um, well, I, I certainly do in terms of he was a writer of the San Francisco Chronicle, and he's been a, a writer for a long time. 72 to 2009, that dude wrote for the San Francisco Chronicle, and he's written for every publication you can think of that matters to this show, right? Rolling Stone, Billboard, Melody Maker, the LA Times, uh, and he's written like a million books. So many books that when I looked at the what I affectionately refer to as the Rock and Roll Bedtime Story study section of my library, um, and there's it's a pretty big section, there's books in there that he wrote that I didn't realize he had written. I knew I owned the book. I didn't know it was written by Joel Selvin. That's that's how ubiquitous he is when it comes to rock and roll stuff. So he's written about Ricky Nelson, Sammy Hagar, The Stones, The Dead, and he just dropped this new book called Hollywood Eden. And Hollywood Eden, the subtitle is awesome. It's Electric Guitars, Fast Cars, and The Myth of the California Paradise. Yeah, and uh, without giving it away too much, because uh, Brian plowed through this book, I understand that Joel is going to be taking us through a senior class of one high school that is pounded full of unbelievable talent that touched all of American like music and pop culture. It's time, I think, to welcome our first guest. We've never had a guest no. in 40 episodes yeah. of this show. Um, and man, what a guest. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show, the legendary Joel Selvin. Good to be here. This is great. Yeah. 
we're going to try not to geek out too hard on you. Um, we, we uh, being rock and roll nerds who own a bunch of books, and we go back and we're like, well, I think Joel Selvin wrote half of these books, and he's agreed to be on the show. So this is <laughs> incredibly exciting. Uh, speaking of books, you got a brand new one, uh, Hollywood Eden, and I'm finishing it tonight. And I'm telling you, it's uh, it's excellent. But we, I, I wanted to bring you in as an expert because you literally wrote the book on today's question uh, about Jan and Dean. I didn't know much about Jan and Dean as, as an act. I kind of associated him with the beach boys and there are a lot of rock and roll bedtime stories to tell about those dudes. What a couple of characters. So, I mean, I'm just going to jump right in with you and we'll talk about the book as we go. Cause there's a lot of characters in that book. And we, you know, I mean, I think we could do a whole side series with you on the characters in that book, but I, I just want you to set it up for us a little bit about Jan and Dean and about the high school, because this is a fascinating thing about them meeting in high school. Well, I know exactly what you mean, Brian. Uh, I think people tend to look upon Jan and Dean as, uh, you know, Beach Boys imitators uh, that sort of tagged along behind them. Actually, it was the other way around. The Beach Boys were Jan and Dean imitators. When uh, their first record came out, Surfing, uh, everybody in Los Angeles recognized it as a kind of like take on the 1959 Jan and Dean hit Baby Talk. It was a top 10 record across the country. Uh, and while Jan and Dean didn't have a lot of other big hits for a while, they had regional hits. Their, their, their records were all over Los Angeles radio and their style was very well known. And indeed, what, what surfing was was sort of an adaptation of the Jan and Dean West Coast doo-wop style that proved very successful. And when they finally met up, uh, oh, you know, within a year after uh, Brian started putting out Beach Boys records, uh, Brian, of course, was a huge fan, and Jan really figured out exactly how to work this. Brian had had two, maybe three singles into his career at that point. Jan had like a couple dozen. And he was the guy who showed Brian how to stack vocal harmonies and overdub. He was the guy that convinced Brian to use session players on his uh, uh, records. And, and all the Jan and Dean records uh, uh, after uh, Brian uh, uh, turned up on the scene were Brian Wilson collaborations. He was singing and playing on all those records. He, he, he yeah. had that one line, two girls for every boy. And yeah. Jan turned it into the whole thing with a couple of other guys uh, in the Surf City. But, you know, that was Brian's first experience with, with you know, 12-part vocal harmony. <laughs> well, and, and Daddy Wilson, not a fan, not a fan of Jan and Dean, right? Uh, Murray was not happy that they were hanging out. No, no Murray didn't. Uh, 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 he, he saw it as a family business. He, he didn't see any reason why Jan Barry should, should uh, benefit and profit from uh, Brian's work. But he, uh, the, the the Jan and Dean thing goes back to the very beginnings of rock and roll in Los Angeles, and the book starts in the the um, Holly, Hollywood uh, uh, Eden. It starts in the class of 1958 of University High, and University High is in, on the edge of Santa Monica. It serves the uh, Nice, privileged neighborhoods of Bel Air and Brentwood. Lots of show business families. Uh, and in that senior class uh, was Jan, Dean, uh, Nancy Sinatra, uh, Bruce Johnson of the Beach Boys. Uh, Kim Fowley had gone to be a record producer. Uh, Sandy Nelson, who would have hits as a drummer, yep. big uh, instrumental records. And, uh, geez, even the 
gal whose diaries her father turned into a best-selling book and subsequent movie, Gidget, was in that class. It's unbelievable. <laughs> it's unbelievable. They all went to high school together. Like, that just is it, – it's crazy. At the same time, they all knew each other. There were other people, too. J- James Brolin was in that class. Ryan O'Neill was in that class. Wow. There's a yeah, – there, it, it was just a, a, a golden moment and a, and, a, and a perfect convergence of time and place to be an American teenager. And what happened in, in the course of, of, of a very short period of time, it, the book begins with Jan and Dean singing uh, doo-wop songs in the gym shower after football practice and ends with Brian Wilson making good vibrations arguably the greatest pop music record ever made <laughs> that, that's a, that's the journey and it took a, a surprisingly short period of time well, and they're also young. Had a, a top 10 hit when he was senior in high school right i mean that that's the thing for me this i mean i think like there is this thing that happens in the book where you you start to dig into some tragedy that happens and it's like oh man these guys had you know, their lives kind of took a turn. It's like, that was, they were like 25 when that happened. Like it's all happened within a, a seven or eight year period. It's just, it's mind blowing how fast it happened. Now, one thing I wanted to ask you about, because you've touched on this a little bit and we both, we mentioned that we both came from the world of radio is what it was like to have regional scenes back at that time. Right. Because everything now is so interconnected, but there's, you spend a lot of time talking in the book about something I never thought about before, which is about this LA radio scene, right? There were things happening in LA that weren't happening across the country or maybe were happening sun- across the country with different artists or something. And the sun there, there and were, song there was, yeah. around the country, but it, it, Los Angeles benefited from, uh, uh, you know, a cultural situation, uh, that, uh, you know, these kids in, in this upper class high school, they tuned into black disc jockeys, uh, or at least people who were, um, addressing the black community. I don't think it was any of them were black. <laughs> now that I think about it, but Art LeBeau, um, Huggy Boy, um, and uh, gosh, the, uh, the Harlem Holiday, the big, the biggest one of them all, and I'm spacing not his name, but the, they had these uh, R&B, blues, and, and, and dance music shows, uh, and all you had to do is twist the dial, and bingo, you know, that world opened up to you. And for some reason, it was the this music that w- that we call doo-wop that really hit home with that class. Uh, and, and, and that class entered high school in 1955, right? September 1955, James Dean just died in a car crash, and Bill Haley and the Comets, Rock Around the Clock, has just gone number one. So that's like the first rock and roll high school class. Elvis is their junior year. Uh, and and the uh, Buddy Holly and the Everly Brothers are their uh, you know their sophomore year, and then Buddy Holly and the Everly Brothers their junior year, and the, their senior year they're making the records themselves. Yeah, it, it's I mean it's bonkers. Uh, let's talk about Jan and Dean. Speaking of people making records, because uh, give us I mean it's hard to say. Give us a condensed version of that story up to a certain point, but there's a couple of of spots I want to get to. I mean, of course, one of them to me is is the 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 movie that didn't get made. The fact that there was going to be this Jan and Dean movie that didn't happen, which is an unbelievable story. But I think what we what we have heard from folks is like, what is the story about Frank uh, Sinatra Jr. getting oh, isn't that amazing? kidnapped? Right. So yeah, we're getting some questions about that. Tell us about that. High hijink. 
uh, Barry Keenan was w w one of the uh, University High buddies. He he was in the same car club as Jan, the Barons. He he, he hung out up the hill at the uh, uh, you know the Barry Garage a lot, and he'd stayed in touch with Dean, and uh, he made a lot of money as a stockbroker. Then he'd lost a lot of money, and he'd gotten into problems with a car crash and pain-killing drugs, and he'd cooked up this scheme to get everything, make himself well, simply was going to kidnap Frank Sinatra Jr. And and it was all laid out in a business plan that he showed Dean. <laughs> like this, you know, 27-page business plan detailing not just how it's going to go, but how the proceeds are going to be paid back because this was just, he just wanted, needed some front money for a stock move. Oh. I just, you know, I don't know how seriously Dean took it but he funded it, uh, and and because they were high school buddies, is that yeah? Oh, and beyond high school, okay. Uh, okay. Uh, Dean had made a bunch of dough on investments that uh, that Barry had tipped him to. Oh. Wow, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, Dean's this classic case of of uh, you, you know what came to be called hang loose. You know, yeah, the yeah. California <laughs> laid back guy, right? Who you know who could put up with Jan's overbearing personality because. Hey, they were having fun. They were making money. They were meeting girls. Uh, he lived at home with his parents. He never dropped out of school. He was always like moving forward in college. And, and, <laughs> what a nerd. Uh, you know, preparing for the career after rock yeah. and roll because yeah. it certainly wasn't going to last. I mean, yeah. And and so he had a, a top 10 hit and, and he had a second one cooking uh, and – Barry comes on to him about this Frank Sinatra Jr. thing, and yeah, he gives him five hundred bucks, and gives him another five hundred bucks, and 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 he gets involved in some bank safety deposit box as a signator, and you know Barry gets stuffs evidence into that, and they actually pull this kidnapping off. It's the worst, most bungled kidnapping ever, and it gets more bungled as it goes along. It's like the gang that couldn't shoot straight. It's hilarious. So, so does man. does Dean think that like he's just helping out a buddy and that this guy's just talking out of his head and that he needs the money and he doesn't really think he's going to go through with it? Is that kind of the the rationalization? Because he's just to your point about being hang loose, he just doesn't seem like he really thinks they're going to do it. Who knows what? Dean <laughs> yeah, I mean, to me, to the the scariest <laughs> is, is, the scariest idea of a musician's son to kidnap is Frank Sinatra's son. Like in retrospect, thinking about like how dangerous of an idea uh, that would be um, completely. By the way, Joel, I've saw Sinatra when I was younger, uh, thanks to my gambling dad. And, and Sinatra had the monitors, you know, with the lyrics uh, and he was kept forgetting the words, even though the monitors were there. And and his son would turn around and mouth the words to him, and then he would sing the song. And I always thought that was so cute because I watched him do that like three times in the set. Like he forgot the words to Mac the Knife, but like as soon as as Frank Jr. would turn around, he would look. They would look at each other and 
remember their the words. I thought that was crazy. I, I wanted to ask you, Joel. Like uh, Brian's almost at the end of the book, so he has so many like so many other things. But we we had talked about this earlier before we wanted to to speak to you about about song wars, about when people were making records on either side of the country so that you had East Coast, the East Coast version was happening and the West Coast version was happening, or someone would record a song and then send another band out on tour. So was that it's like really prevalent? Like, was that more common than we really think? Oh, uh, uh, in the early days of the record business in the 50s and 60s, uh, the compulsory licensing provision of the Copyright Act was, you know, well exercised. And that, that means that, you know, the songwriter had one original license that he could grant. And then he has to he has to approve all the others. So as soon as, you know, Mitch Miller did it with Tony Bennett at Columbia, somebody over at Mercury did it with Frankie Lane and somebody wow. did it, you know, and they battled it all out. That was just common as heck. Uh, in in Hollywood Eden, the the the, the prime uh, the prime example of that is and it it was the record business in Hollywood in 1960 was just completely small time, you know, run out of storefronts. There was Capitol Records, but that was old square stuff. Nat King Cole, Frank Sinatra, the rock and roll stuff was just really like chiseling little independent guys who were trying to make a buck selling records to teenagers, right? Uh, and uh, the uh, Kim Fowley, one of our university high kids, he gets his first shot at a hit record uh, uh, associating with um, uh, a, a, a hillbilly he met named Gary Paxson, sort of a tortured genius type. And they came up with this song, uh, Alley Oop, and uh, oh. recorded it and named the group the Hollywood Argyles. I mean, there was no Hollywood Argyles. Uh, eventually, there would be many Hollywood Argyles, but the record got, you know, to Lou Adler, who was Jan and Dean's manager, and he he did not like Fowley and, and didn't see any reason Fowley should have that hit record. So he got a group uh, that he managed called Dante and the Evergreens, or they named them Dante and the Evergreens, and note for note, just covered that record as exactly as they could. They came out the same day. That's unbelievable. So and one market, the Hollywood Argyles would have the hit. Next market, Dante and the Evergreens would have the hit. And that record did so well that some of the uh, R&B guys in Los Angeles put out a version and, and, and you know, called it, the, you know, the Dinosaurs or something like that. But, you know, they thought they'd cop some uh, play on the R&B stations for this song. Did the Beach Boys now, do it at some point time. too? And then out came the parodies, right? Did, yeah, I got uh, when I the very first time I heard Alley Oop, it was from a, a like an early '70s comp record that uh, my parents either had laying around the house that had it was called Funky Favorites, <laughs> and that was on there. Like Charlie, like there were coaster songs on there, right? Um, Hello Mudda, Hello Father was on there. Oh, uh, I forgot about then, that one. And then, Right, and then Alley Oop was on there, um, and I. It took Alley Oop's me- a heck of a record. Uh, it's you know white teenagers on top, and on on the uh, on the drums and on the uh, piano and on the bass and on guitar are grizzled veterans of the R and B scene in Los Angeles. Guys that you know uh, were in vocal groups in the fifties and 
played with the platters and stuff like that. Well, and and Kim Fowley, which by the way, I didn't originally know who he was until I got the the Nuggets records, and my least favorite track on there was his that song the trip like you know, he had those the, the novelty records we're going on a trip and i was like all the rest of the stuff was like you know kind of rave up you know kind of rock and roll things yeah, right. and then and then that's when i went backwards and i was like oh he produced the gene vincent record oh the runaways oh like i didn't re- i i didn't even know uh warren zevon like i had no idea um that fowley was so super significant uh, because the, my very first impression was that song, and it almost ruined his. Like I always just thought, ah, the well, worst. I think it's perfect. No, I, I think it's perfect. So no, look, look, Fowley is a classic Hollywood character. He, he's he's not a good guy at all. Yeah, and he's got no talent. He can't sing. <laughs> he can't write. He can't play an instrument. He can't produce a record by himself. I mean, We're going on a trip. But he manages to <laughs> get successful enough to stay in the game yeah. for years and years and years and years and years. Uh, and he's just starting out in Hollywood, Eden. And, and, and uh, his fingerprints are on all kinds of sort of weird moments there. But there's, there's you know, no, he never had a big hit and, and, and never scored. Uh, and, and I totally believe Jackie Fox's account of her being raped by Fowley while uh, uh, he was managing and producing The Runaway. So this guy's yep. dumb. But yep. in, in Hollywood Eden, he's just merely a creep. Yeah. And, uh, and he's kind of Hollywood spawn. His father was in a hundred movies, but, you know, you never heard of him because he just was nothing. He was just there. Uh, Mom bailed on the movies to marry well, which is another classic Hollywood strategy. <laughs> and Fowley, he was sort of bounced between the two of them and in and out of foster care as a wow. kid before he landed in University High. And he hated Jan Berry, and Jan Berry hated him, and Lou Adler hated him. And they, they, they you know, high school never ends if you live in the town you grew up in. <laughs> Especially if it's Hollywood, you know, right? Yeah. And and you know what I I hadn't seen or thought about Kim Fowley in such a long time until I saw that the documentary about Rodney on the Rock, this Mayor of the Sunset Strip, and all of a sudden Kim Fowley came on the screen and it was like ah, it was like seeing the clown from It, like it just fucked with your head. Really, you know, it's like visually like he's creepy. Uh, in addition to everything else about him being creepy, but yeah, yeah, he was a six foot four high school senior who'd had polio and you know he, he was what uh, lord buckley would say the kitty with the bent frame <laughs> uh so i you know one thing i didn't realize uh until i dug into hollywood eden more well we could let that joke continue that was that was pretty good um <laughs> <laughs> is is what a big deal Jan and Dean were for a for a while. And as you pointed out, these careers came and went quickly and the records came and went quickly. And I was I was just really interested to to hear about the folks who were like in high school and then in the army that like had hit records and they'd be at the base and they'd turn the, the radio on and be like, Hey, we have a hit record. <laughs> but uh, with Jan and Dean, like they were huge and there was uh there was a, a variety show that they hosted and they were like, Jan was always trying to turn it into comedy. And, uh, and then eventually at some point they get an offer to do a movie and you've got to walk us through this story about the movie because this is absolutely unbelievable. Oh, it's a big deal movie deal. Uh, you know, 
all kinds of uh, uh, supporting cast, major uh, uh, figures were signed up, and it was a big deal film director and a big deal screenwriter. I mean, uh, and yeah, they're ready, you know, to go do this movie. And the first scene is um, the last scene in the movie where they walk alongside a train on a track that is going to pull away. And then it, as it speeds up, they run. And then through movie magic, they go, boom, and turn into like sprinkles. And the sprinkles say the end, right? So it's a, it's a mank shot and they're, and, and, and they're gonna do this. And, and that's the first shot. And the, you know, there's a train crash that, that injures like 30 people and, and breaks Jan's uh, leg on the second take. It's just, you know, like uh, and then they all don't over do right the movie. at the beginning. <laughs> the movie gets canceled because of a train crash. Did, did anyone oh, die in that? Insurance liability and, you know, yeah. It, there weren't any deaths, though? It was just injury? Yeah, the, the, it was the injuries were significant. It was the director, the cinematographer, the star. <laughs> they had with eighteen train. people in the hospital. Well, and you tell the story in the book in such a way that it's like you're there, and and they're they're like literally at one point, hang loose. Dean is like, huh, I don't think I'm hanging around for this shot, and he walks off right before. So Dean, so Dean, he's like <laughs> he's on the uh, on the the, the train uh, uh, that's got the the camera on it and everybody's hanging out and watching the, the shot. And, and the, they, the first take, it's like, Ooh, you know, I don't know about <laughs> that. Close. I think I'm going to lunch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, you know, I did consider who would I, who would I want to be more Jan or Dean? And by the time I got near the end of the book, I was like, I really feel like Dean is the right answer. I, I think hanging, hanging loose and hanging out at your parents' house. It's one of those decisions you make as an adult. When you're a kid, you definitely want to be Jan. You want to be the funny front guy. As you're an adult, you look back and you're like, I don't know. I think Dean made a lot of the good choices. <laughs> it's a personality test. I can, I, you got it, you know, well, which would you rather be Jan or Dean? You know, I mean, definitely the alphas are all going to want to be Jan, but you know, you're right. The the older we, uh, I get, you know, the the more I see in the beta. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure, man, for sure. I'm a proud yeah. I'm a proud beta for a long time, and I I just the older I get, the more I feel good about that. You know, I'm, so let's stay home and talk about rock and roll instead of going out trying to impress people. Um, I'm converted. I was a I was definitely an alpha. <laughs> I'm no longer an alpha. No, no you are not. When, no, well, I mean, just when people are like, well, what did you used to do like for a living? I, I used to be a bar fly. Like, I don't know what to tell people like my previous life was like. It wasn't like this. Um, but yeah, it's completely different um, than it is now. Anyway, go ahead, Brian. What were you, Joel? I don't Joel? know if you're a Jan or a Dean. <laughs> yeah. Joel, were you, were, have, have you converted to Deanhood from Janhood or have you always been a Dean? You know, it depends on what time of day. <laughs> It's kind of that way for all of us, right? You know, sometimes my inner Dean is just right there. And, you know, I just can't get up out of the garden stool. And, you know, <laughs> then other times my inner jam takes over. And, you know, I'm scrubbing pots and cleaning the kitchen. Pop it in just one more time to remind you of this show brought to you today by Baxter Blue. They do digital eye strain or they help you not do digital eye strain is really what it's about. Blue light exposure, digital screens. 
oh man, that's the story of our lives, right? And uh, Baxter Blue glasses are going to knock them out. And they're not your average frames. Those blue light lenses filter 80% of the highest energy blue light, eliminating 99% of the glare. Uh, you can also be a good a good person while you're buying Baxter Blue glasses. Uh, if you buy one, they're going to give another one to somebody else reading glasses for somebody who needs them. You could help somebody get reading glasses and be helping yourself at the same time. Plus, we're going to make it even easier for you, 10% off, because you're a Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories listener. Uh, all you got to do is check the show notes and grab that discount code, and you'll get 10% off your next purchase of Blue Light Sleeper Kids Glasses. Thanks again. We appreciate the love, Baxter Blue. And Baxter Blue, you're going to appreciate them. Check it out now. Uh, man, let's talk about you for a minute, if that's cool. Uh, I just I appreciate you taking the time for us because we do uh, appreciate your work and know that you have been in the music game and the music uh, criticism game and the music reporting game and the music journalism game for a long, long time. Um, what, like, what was the music that sent you in that direction when you were younger? Well, um, I, I was a uh, copy boy at the San Francisco Chronicle in 1967 and I was on the guest list at the Fillmore. Hell yeah. So, you know, I mean, uh, this is like one of the archetypical experiences of my generation. You know, I took LSD and danced to the Grateful Dead at the <laughs> Fillmore. Damn. <laughs> and you've written a book sure. about the dead, right? I, I did. I did write a scurrilous tract on the dead. You know, <laughs> it, it made me a pariah to the deadheads. Did but, it? Uh, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it, they're a speak no evil crowd. Sure. Uh, and um, the, but those guys have always been terribly entertaining to me. I, I, w- I went to work at the Chronicle in 1970, and I and I considered the Grateful Dead like a a local news story, and the the the, uh, the Chronicle should be the market leader in all Grateful Dead news. So I followed their career fairly closely, and and musically, I'll say this about them. You know, uh, some of the greatest things i ever heard in a concert hall they played but you had to wade through an awful lot of stuff to get to those moments you know <laughs> yeah joel the one thing that i was really excited to talk to you about and i didn't even know how to breach this but now we're here it comes so um it was a couple of years ago that you you spoke um on it was a, a monterey pop like symposium and we, I know like Lou Adler's in the book. And for me, like Lou that was Adler's 2001. One. Yeah. So that for me, that's like yesterday. Um, <laughs> a few years, years ago. ago. A few years ago. years ago. Yeah, I know. It, it is a few years ago to me. Um, but like for me, like once I figured out Lou Ad, like what Lou Adler was doing in Monterey Pop, could you, did you attend like, do, what is your, what could you talk about Monterey Pop since we weren't there at this when you spoke 20 years ago oh. at this? Because I watched the film. I used to have the box set. Um, it comes up Otis on this Redding, show a lot. We talk about Monterey Pop yeah. a lot. Yeah, yeah. And Otis Redding going double, like triple time or whatever he does at Shake at the beginning, like the, the set, dun, like dun, everything. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, Monterey Pop doesn't exist in Hollywood Eden. Uh, b- the book ends a year before Monterey Pop. And what transpires at Monterey Pop in three days is an extreme pivot in 
popular music history. Uh, in in sort of in radio terms, it was the end of AM radio and the beginning of FM radio. Uh, oh, there was a Canadian sociologist uh, named Marshall McLuhan, who was very popular at the time, and he referred to it as the hi-fi stereo changeover, where the the audience for popular music migrated from small records with big holes in the center and monophonic sound to big records, small holes, and stereo sound. Wow. These, these were huge, substantial differences in the culture, and, the, and they also were in, in, entailed vast changes in the underlying network of whatever music was actually being produced. So that that's what happened at Monterey Pop in, in a nutshell, is that Lou Adler wanted Lou Adler and John Phillips of the Mamas and Papas wanted to put on a representation of what was going on in this international music movement that had swept everybody in it up at that point. Uh, and they got associations with all ends of the business, including in San Francisco, where the hippies were a little suspicious about the Los Angeles crowd, you, you know, because they were making records and making money and, and, and they weren't necessarily on to all these new values. But the San Francisco bands were the bands of the moment and they hadn't played out of San Francisco. They'd only been in, uh, in, in, in the San Francisco ballrooms. Nobody had really seen them. Uh, the Jefferson Airplane was out there and their record, uh, Surrealistic Pillow, had been released in February and it was blowing up, as they say now. Uh, White Rabbit had been a huge record and but it, it, and and the somebody love was going up the charts at the time it was going to be in the top 10 the week of monterey pop festival wow. and, but it was more than that they were the harbinger of this new rock sound they 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 represented the 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 spirit tip of something that nobody really could hear outside of you know the neighborhood because it wasn't into the mass media yet and so you had these three things you had london you had uh, uh, you had Los Angeles, you had London, which was the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you had San Francisco. They wanted to bring the R&B world in very much so because of the consciousness and all that. But you can't really convince uh, uh, um, African-American entertainers of 1967 to uh, do something for love, not money. Uh, you know, like they wanted Chuck Berry and, and, and he wanted fifteen hundred dollars, you know, you know, <laughs> yeah. oh, good. they weren't paying. Well, you know, then Chuck Berry wasn't interested. And they, tune up. And they tried hmm. to get Smokey Robinson, but Smokey didn't understand the concept of benefit concerts. You know, he was, you know, of a different mind. And it was Phil Walden, Otis Redding's manager. who was will go on to start Capricorn Records and manage the Almond Brothers and all that. Yeah. Wow. He was the one that understood, yeah, this would be really good for Otis and we'll do it. And Jerry Wexler of Atlantic Records encouraged him. He, he, you know, so that's how Otis landed up there. And that was a huge moment for Otis and for soul music in general. But really, you know, everybody went in there one way and came out another way. The, the, the mamas and papas went in on the tail of six top 10 records in a row and never had another one after that week. <laughs> Uh, and the, the acts that everybody was talking about after the weekend was Big Brother and the Holding Company with Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, uh, Otis Redding, 
Uh, you know, it wasn't uh, Johnny Rivers and the association. They were washed up after that weekend. Yeah. yeah. Everyone knows it's windy, right? <laughs> Along comes Mary. Along comes Mary. Oh, by the way, that was and the don't most. Don't forget Cherish. Oh, Cherish, yeah. The, um, I can feel was... it in the back of my throat right now. That's That was the most, like, upbeat uh, association set. They were real. They were they were going. They were playing pretty fast. Uh, I mean, well, collect the birds. Was kind of impressed what they were doing. You know, at the audience, they just never seen anything like it before. Uh, it was held on the Monterey uh, County Fairgrounds, where the jazz festival had been ha- happening since 1958. It's a horse show arena that seats 8,500, and like 25,000 people showed up. And they, they let a bunch of them into the gates of the park, uh, and then the rest sort of crowded around. And the the um, Sunday night when uh, the Grateful Dead are on, and and for some unknown reason, the producers send Peter Tork of the Monkeys, the loathsome TV group <laughs> Monkey, sends Peter Tork out there to tell people that the rumors of the Beatles appearing are not true. You could only imagine how the Grateful Dead enjoyed being interrupted to hear that oh wow what the hell is that? and at that point phil lesh who's always been a troublemaker he just says hey come on nobody's stopping you come on in and the uh, and the horse arena filled up for the grateful dead uh after the grateful dead was uh the the uh, jimmy hendrix show uh, so the place was at full pandemonium for that whole guitar and, and cigarette lighter stunt uh, he just rolled over everybody, and and the mamas and papas are trying to follow that, you know, <laughs> with their sort of you know Turkish caftans on and shit. And and uh, Scott McKenzie comes out in the middle of their set to sing this little top forty hit that John Phillips <laughs> has written to promote the festival about. If you're going to San Francisco, be sure and wear some flowers in your hair. And Country Joe McDonald's sitting out in the audience. He's coming down finally after a three-day trip on something called STP that Owsley had developed sort of kind of just special for the Monterey Pop Festival. And, and, and he's sitting there like, we've been hacked. <laughs> Oh man. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And don't ask Jack Cassidy about that STP stuff. He he came to naked screaming in a jail cell. That's how he ended up the Monterey Pop weekend. <laughs> He'd been jamming with Hendrix the night before though. <laughs> oh wow. Um man, this couple of friends of mine took STP. And, and, and I, I asked him about the experience, and one of them said, man, it was far out. I died. And the other one said, oh, I was heavy, man. I was born. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Joel, you're, uh, you're a blast, dude. Uh, we're so glad you're here. I want to I wrap up. Uh, I'm just so thankful for your time. But I thought we'd run through a couple of, of – 
stories that we've covered on the show before because they fall squarely in kind of the Hollywood Eden framework and then see if you have anything to add. So uh, pretty recently on the show, we talked we talked about the rumor that we've all heard about Mama Cass choking on a ham sandwich. We have uncovered that that is not true. It had to do with the coroner's report saying that there was a ham sandwich in the room. Uh, but there is actually does not look like she she had ingested it at the time. Um, do, you, do you have anything to add there about? And also, we talked about the apartment that Keith Moon also died in. That apparently is true, which is crazy. Yeah, that's that's sort of eerie, isn't it? There, there, the apartment has some long history. There's more to it than that, too. It it was you know handed down in the in rock circles in London. And- you know, developed this unfortunate tragic thing. Yeah, and then at uh, one point Townsend bought it, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And the other one of my favorite episodes and one of our most listened to episodes uh, does involve the Beach Boys and uh, Dennis's uh, Dennis, who makes very brief appearances in the book, is basically screwing off, which I love. Uh, and fits with this his his brief foray into hanging out with Charles Manson. And the Manson family. So I, I, I can, I, I, I knew Dennis pretty well, uh, and and he was a million laughs, just uh, beyond belief. The in in many ways, he was kind of the 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 heart and soul of the Beach Boys. Sure. Uh, he was the one that, you know, always was there for Brian. There was never a moment of criticism. Brian was his big brother and and he just hated mike love and and devoted his life to making life mike love's life miserable as he could uh, cheers and that 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 was god's work you know they were doing this album at their the studio that dennis owned in santa monica called brother studios and mike love had this uh meditation chamber under a staircase built with shag rug on all you know around and it's like little you crawl in there and meditate underneath the staircase i run into dennis walking down the hall on on uh uh you know the dinner time you know and and he's got this smile on his face like and what's what's so funny he goes i just off in mike's meditation chamber (laughs) We end up at the studio that night. He's working on this, that thing, the other. Uh, and he, he, sa- he says, you going back to the hotel. Uh, and there's something about that. Just He wouldn't have it. So he takes me out to his place. I'm going to spend the night in his guest room. Out on the beach in Malibu. And he, uh, he puts me in bed and, 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 and says goodnight and goes on upstairs. And then 10 minutes later, he's back. You know, do, do you mind talking? I go, no. You know, so I get up. We go into the living room. Uh, it's about seventy-five. I mean, do you remember the Advent televisions? Those those big screen televisions. The first mm-hmm. version of them is a real yeah. rock star yeah, yeah, thing yeah, 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 yeah. to have yeah. in your living room, right? Yeah. And and he put on a videotape of Deep Throat, and 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 <laughs> fast forward to this one particular scene that he wanted to watch over and over. Okay. <laughs> So while while this is going on, he starts to explain that his girlfriend upstairs uh, has told him that he neither needs to marry her or she's moving out. And he just doesn't know what to say. So he wants to talk about this over and he starts going through the whole thing about 
his sex life with as a a, a, a 14 year old when there are all these girls out there and his father wouldn't let him have any of them. And, you know, sooner or later he gets around to Charlie and he starts talking about, you know, it's just piles of bodies, man. You just crawled in and, uh, you know, I, man, you know, just, it, 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 there was no end to it. There just was, you know, okay. You know, uh, now the, uh, end of the story is that he, he, uh, this went on for hours, by the way, uh, is that he decided to get married, but she had to sign a very serious prenup. It didn't last very long, but then they did get married again, although that didn't last all that long either. Uh, and the next time I see Dennis is uh, the Beach Boys are on stage at the Oakland Coliseum, and I'm trying to take my seat in the third row. Uh, uh, you know, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. And, and the gal I'm with starts tugging on my shoulder and, and pointing up at the stage. And I look up at the stage, and Dennis is standing on his drum stool and pointing both drumsticks at me as I'm walking <laughs> through the crowd. How and, awesome. And, and I look up, and I go, ah, oh, like this. And he just spreads his legs and falls on his drum stool and goes, and starts California Girls. Wow. Oh, that's that My is the most was so impressed. As she should be. That's a freaking rock and roll story. Wow. What an awesome rock and roll story. Wow. Oh man. Joel, thank you so much, dude. I'm not gonna now that I know how to get in touch with you, just I'll try to be I'll try to be polite, but uh we're gonna have to have you back. Oh, it'd be my pleasure. You guys are great. Uh, you're fantastic, dude. Thank you so much. The book, Hollywood Eden, uh, we'll put the uh, link to it in the show notes. And if you know what's right for you, you're going to buy it and you're going to enjoy it because, man, it is just full of story. We barely we barely skimmed the surface. We, it is full of stories about that group from the class of 58. So holy holy cow. Thank you so much, man. We appreciate you. And we'll, uh, All right, fellas. This is great. Really. Tons of fun, you guys. Call me anytime. Careful what careful what you you say there, buddy. I'll, 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 I'll keep it professional. I'll keep it professional. Thank you, dude. This is really good. All right, fellas. All right, talk to you soon. Thanks, Joel.